In 2014, Cherie Collier was living in Marietta, Georgia with her husband, Antoine, her high school sweetheart. They had good, stable jobs. She was an event planner. He was a manager at a national pharmacy chain. They had four young kids. It was everything they'd always wanted. Then one day, Cherie turned to Antoine and said, Hey, babe, you know what we should do? And he's like, oh, God, what? What is it? I was like, you know what? I think I'm over this. Like, I think we need to go get the RV. What you just heard? That's Cherie describing the moment that changed their lives. After that moment, they packed up their kids and hit the open road. They even sold their four-bedroom house. It was a really cute house. I think one day we just woke up and kind of like looked outside and realized that everyone on our street or in the neighborhood just, I mean, we had nothing in common with these people. They were out there like tending to the garden and the sheriff lived next door. And it just, it just wasn't for us. Hi, I'm Ashley Seaford, and this is Fortune Favors the Bold, a branded podcast from MasterCard and Gimlet Creative. It's a show about the changing role that money plays in our lives and what happens when we take risks and challenge our own beliefs about why it exists and what we really need it for. Today, we're telling stories of risk-takers, like Cherie, who have chosen to put their personal values, like experience and travel, over traditional ideas of stability and ownership. Growing up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, I always thought I'd have a good career, a nine-to-five kind of thing. Maybe marry a good man, get a good house, have a couple of good kids. But when I actually grew up, I realized I didn't want any of those things, at least not the way they were presented. A few years ago, I left Indiana and a stable job, then moved to New York City. I'm still here in New York, and right now, I don't work full-time. I'm hosting this podcast, and I'm also hosting a TV and radio show. Plus, I write for publications like New York Magazine and Refinery29. I'm self-employed. I take on projects as they come, and I love it. I live for the time I have to write at home. I love that I'm never working on just one project or with just one client. And I love the ability to travel when I want. This type of work suits my lifestyle. Technically, I'm part of the gig economy. And if you've spent any time watching the news, you've probably heard of that. People talk about the gig economy, gig economy. in the gig economy. Or so-called gig economy. Gig economy. Gig economy. Gig economy. The freelance economy. The gig economy. The gig economy. The textbook definition of the gig economy is a labor market characterized by the prevalence of contract or freelance work as opposed to permanent jobs. Right now, 36% of workers in the United States earn at least part of their income from non-standard work. And it's predicted that by 2020, the gig economy will make up over 40% of the American workforce. Almost half. So we know that this is happening. But why is this happening? So access versus ownership is, I think, the personal finance revolution of our time. The concept is that you are now able to create a lifestyle for yourself, whatever lifestyle that you're interested in choosing, and you can create that lifestyle without having to buy it. That's Diane Mulcahy. 
She's an adjunct lecturer at Babson College, and she literally wrote the book on the gig economy. I want you to note this phrase, access versus ownership. It's something we've been hearing a lot while exploring this topic. For example, I don't want to pay for car insurance or a parking spot in Brooklyn, but I'd like to have a car for road trips. So instead of buying a car, I use a car sharing app to access one when I want. In this episode, we'll tell stories of folks putting these values into action. And we'll answer the questions that I desperately want answers to. Is it sustainable to work this way? And what does it mean for the future of work? We'll get back to the Collier family later on, the ones who packed up their lives and hit the road in their RV. I have to say, I admire them. We both had that moment where we realized that our life was not going the way we wanted. And we made a decision to find more freedom. But for me, I had to take baby steps. And now I want to take you to the place where I took those steps. Our office used to be right down there at the end of the hall. You can look right into it right now. I used to invite my friends to just have come have lunch with me here. And then we could always have midday beers right here at the bar because they have beer on tap constantly. <laughs> One of my favorite things about this place is that whatever kind of milk you like in your coffee, they have it. There's rice milk, there's almond milk. This is WeWork, and full disclosure, WeWork partners with MasterCard to create digitally connected environments. WeWork's entire reason for being is to facilitate person-to-person connections for people looking for a new way of working. It's a co-working space which means that it's an open space shared by people who are self-employed or working for different companies. You don't have to sign an office lease, but when you want to, you can access all the perks of an office. But it's not just copy machines and conference rooms. You know, our aim is to create a life, not a living. So we're a place where people can come to have that home base and really uh, do what they love. That's Natalie Williams. She's the community manager for the WeWork. WeWork has locations all over the world, but we went to the one that housed my old office in North Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Natalie and her team are in charge of overseeing memberships and in-office events, like happy hours and holiday parties. She knows everyone who works there and was able to point them out by name during our visit. We have everyone from a magician, no lie. He's the best. Um, it's He, like, performs for us on the daily. It's the best thing what? ever. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, to Mabel, who is an awesome accountant that does a lot of accounts in our building. It had been a while since I stopped by the WeWork, and it was cool to see what's going on. When we were walking down the hallway, I saw some beautiful handbags in one office, boxes of fancy soups in another, and some men's underwear with funky patterns hanging in a window. Williamsburg is bound to have a unique set of business owners. It is the hipster capital of the world. But what's the wider draw of co-working? Here's author Diane Mulcahy again. One of the things that's very gratifying about working independently is that you have a much wider circle of colleagues and peers that you work with. Because you're working with different employers, you're getting to know different people all the time. This gets to the major benefit of co-working, the cross-pollination of ideas. When I was working at the WeWork, I had a lot of coffee meetings with other writers I just happened to run into there. I got the chance to meet a lot of people I wouldn't have otherwise, and it was so cool. 
But newfound freedom and lack of predictability do require some adjustments. In fact, many people are changing the way they live in order to participate in this emerging economy. It's that access versus ownership idea again. So what we're seeing emerge is a way of living that accommodates more financial flexibility or financial volatility. So we're seeing people renting instead of buying or leasing instead of purchasing. There's a trend towards structuring your life around variable costs instead of fixed costs. Looking out on the WeWork entry, there are floor-to-ceiling windows behind a section of desks, couches, and cafe tables. The whole space is filled with sunlight and plants. There's a French bulldog running around while people stare at their laptops, some at standing desks. And there's an assortment of people, a couple in suits and a few more in yoga pants. We spoke with some of them. I'm a corporate refugee. I started working out of WeWork earlier this year. I didn't really want to double down on my own office because I am somewhat nomadic. It's brought a lot more flexibility to my own life. I have a young child. Uh, it's a quality of life issue as much as anything else. So my DJ name is Andrew Marks. Since I am running out to meetings and going to different studios across the city from time to time, there's no reason really for me to pay for a dedicated desk. I end up networking every single day, um, which for me is like priceless. It's funny because I used to work in investment banking for a long time and always had that entrepreneurial bug lurking inside me. I left the bank about a year and a half ago, and I haven't looked back since. These people seem happy, and I can relate. But doing business out of a co-working space means there is no typical road to success. In a traditional office, you're able to anticipate how you can be successful, what you need to do to get a raise, a promotion, and what your career might look like in the future. But in the new economy, there's no corporate ladder to climb. Here's Diane again. The career trajectory looks much less like a uh, up-and-to-the-right curve and much more like a up-and-down, up-and-down, flat, up-and-to-the-right, down. It, it, it's much more all over the place. Peaks and valleys for sure. I can think of very few people I know personally who have stayed at one job. Diane told me that the median tenure for people under 35 in any job is three years, which is still two years longer than any job I've ever had. Having a job doesn't mean anything anymore. It doesn't mean that you have financial stability. It doesn't mean that you have financial security. It doesn't mean that you have professional stability. And that's another thing about access versus ownership. It's not about stability anymore, but experiences. Which brings us back to Cherie and her family. Remember them? They sold their house, put all their belongings and kids in an RV, and have been traveling around America for the past four years. They take access versus ownership to another level. Coming up after the break, how they make it all work. You're listening to Fortune Favors the Bold, brought to you by MasterCard. 
This show is all about how our relationship with money is changing. And MasterCard is innovating new ways to manage this change. I've always had a passion in looking at technologies that are changing um, industries like banking, like payments, like retail. This is Stefan Wiper, the Senior Vice President of New Commerce Partnerships at MasterCard. It's his job to create technologies that make our lives easier when it comes to money. And one way he's doing that is by making payments seamless. I think it's the idea of never feeling that um, you're actually transacting and just feeling you're sort of experiencing something. So I got very excited when I learned that the MasterCard team is using the internet of things to make buying snacks seamless. I love snacks. Right now, they're piloting their MasterPass technology at select WeWork locations, which means you can visit the snack bars at these WeWorks to buy energy bars or seltzer or chips. But you don't need cash to buy it. You don't even need a credit card. All WeWork members need to do is to log into the app and follow the prompts. They'll get uh, asked to um, confirm that it's them, so ask in an app to authenticate themselves. Uh, we already have their payment information. We already have uh, details as to who they are as a member. They walk up, pick up items and leave, and that's it. So it's a really, really simple experience. And this technology goes far beyond snacks. MasterCard plans to roll this out in stores, restaurants, and even parking meters. You should almost never have to wait in line uh, the shows make it as easy as possible for people to buy the things that they want. Imagine a future without lines. That's pretty cool, right? To learn more, go to newsroom.mastercard.com. That's newsroom.mastercard.com. And we're back. Now we're going to hear from Cherie, who is traveling the U.S. in an RV with her husband and four children. When I caught up with her, they had just set up camp in Texas, and she was sitting outside getting some sun. Cherie and her husband Antoine's decision to hit the road was about valuing new experiences and freedom. They wanted to be working for themselves. They wanted to spend more time with their kids. And they wanted an adventure that they just couldn't get in their picket fence life. But not everyone was on board with their decision to trade their sticks and bricks house for an RV. Even Cherie's parents didn't understand. Yeah, they were pretty um, negative, I'll say. Yeah, they just thought we were absolutely crazy. I mean, we got offers like, oh, did you want to leave the kids with me? Did you did you want to leave the kids with us? Or are you guys sure? Do you want to test it out? Despite the negativity, Cherie and Antoine were determined to start their life in the RV. They gathered their savings and set monthly income goals to support their family along the way. All they needed to do was find jobs. When we were just Googling, like, you know, stuff to do on the road, like how to make money on the road. Um, and it was talking about this man who did the Camper Force program. So we Googled that and boom, there it was. So we were like, OK, let's go do this. This is fun. You know, it can't be that bad. We're working for Amazon. We love Prime. Camper Force is a three to five month program for adventurous folks like Cherie. It starts in September, when Amazon is gearing up for the holiday season. Participants park their RVs and work at Amazon's warehouses, packing boxes and receiving shipments. If you're hired, Amazon pays you an hourly wage and covers the cost of your campsite. Camperforce is a popular gig among work campers. Work campers, if you haven't already guessed, is a portmanteau that describes people who choose to camp in an RV or tent while working. They're like modern nomads, and the movement is pretty big. 
There are roughly 60,000 work campers on the road right now. When I was growing up, I feel like people who drove around and, you know, didn't necessarily think of themselves as being rooted in one place, we called those drifters. And drifters were scary. That's so funny. <laughs> drifters. Um, no, work campers are not scary at all. And maybe they're one in the same. I don't know. If, if a drifter is out there looking for, like, an adventurous life, then they might be a work camper if they're working along the way. Cherie and her husband Antoine's first gigs on the road were at a camper force in Campbellsville, Kentucky. And when they arrived, they realized that they don't exactly fit the average work camper profile. The RVing world is not used to seeing a young family, let alone a young Black family with four children. <laughs> They're not used to us. I mean, when we went to, like, the orientation, you could just tell every—I don't know if they were surprised— um, that we were young or we had we had kids. I don't know. I don't know. We <laughs> walked in there and it was just like everyone just kept repeating, oh, you're the Colliers? It took a couple of days, but the Colliers adjusted to the Camper Force lifestyle. Cherie worked the day shift. She scanned products around the warehouse to fulfill orders. Antoine worked the night shift. He oversaw conveyor belts and made sure orders were being put on the right trucks. Cherie liked picking the products from the shelves the best. It allowed her to have conversations with the people she worked with, and she made a couple of girlfriends. One of them was a former race car mechanic, and the other used to work as a librarian for NASA. Plus, the campgrounds were really nice. They had full hookups, so water, sewer, and electric. They had, you know, nice big swimming pool with splash pad and all that stuff for the kids. They had a clubhouse and, um, like, an on-site cafe where they would like make food and all that stuff. They would have community events. Like one time they had like a, a shrimp broil and then another time they brought out a band and set up a stage and it was just always something happening at that campground um, and we really enjoyed it. Cherie and the family have now been to over 20 states from New York to Wisconsin to Mississippi. They've based their travels on where they can find work and have had many jobs since Camper Force, like resort operators and park rangers. Wherever they go, they find communities. And for the most part, they're happier than they were in their old life. But there are times when Cherie misses an actual home base. The one thing that makes me go back and forth about travel is the weather. And it's completely outside of our control. There's just nothing we can do about it. But it's just such a hassle. You know, when you're in a house, you don't have to worry about that so much. You just go to the basement. Or, you know, you go to the closet. You don't have to worry about, like, bunkering down in a bathhouse with, like, the rest of the campground. Like, just, just, I hate that. The Colliers had a close call when they were managing a campground. There was a thunderstorm. They were actually staying in a home on the property and had stepped out to fix the front gate. My husband was like out there, and I'm just like freaking out. Well, as I'm freaking out watching him at the front gate, I look over to our house and he gets struck by lightning. So, <laughs> but it wasn't like a, a huge, like catch on fire type of strike. It just like blew out, you know, several of the plugs inside of there. Now, whenever there's a severe storm warning, especially if they're staying in Tornado Alley, the Colliers head to a local hotel. But avoiding the elements is far from their only challenge on the road. 
Cherie and Antoine have to carefully budget their finances, line up gigs, and plan adventures for every stop on their journey. I mean, this is like literally planning a road trip like every, you know, two, two weeks to every month. So every two weeks to every month, you know, we're planning another road trip. So that definitely puts a little bit of pressure on you because if something goes wrong right now, you know, that's going to that's gonna put a little a, a dent in our, in our plan. You seem to have found quite a few different ways to make money on the road, if I'm not mistaken. We have. I did a lot of travel writing, or I still do a lot of travel writing, so that has helped tremendously. Um, That actually led to uh, my position at Work Camper News. Um, Antoine just recently um, started, like, a a business where he's going to be doing RV inspections. I mean, we just... We try to do quite a few things (laughs) to keep us busy and, and moving. As Sheree mentioned... She now provides support to her fellow work campers and travelers. She writes articles, newsletters, and holds webinars to keep the community informed. Cherie says that life on the road is great for their four children. Their oldest is 13. They also have a 10-year-old and 7-year-old twins. She believes that because they're homeschooled or road-schooled, it's easier to give them individual attention. There's a set curriculum, but the kids' most valuable education is centered around where they find themselves on the road. The kids have an atlas with lots of pictures, and they all enjoy plotting their next adventure. They were excited that they were going to go and get to see and do things that we were looking at on this this map. So they're looking at this map with all these, like, cool icons and things on it, and that kind of, like, sparked their interest. And we're like, oh, so we're going to go see, like, the Statue of Liberty? Or are we going to go see, you know... <laughs> so they just, they were coming up with their own bucket list from the start. They find a lot of educational value in packing up the RV and heading to historic sites. Imagine learning about the Battle of Gettysburg while standing in the same field where the battle took place. It's like that. They also recently visited the 9-11 Memorial Museum. So they gave us like a personal guided tour through the museum and it it was just so moving. And uh, it was really cool. The curator like sat with the kids and it was almost like their own personal um, teacher right there. It's just very different. It's a very different experience uh, to learn in a hands-on way as opposed to just reading about these things in like a book. The entire family values experience over ownership. For birthdays and holidays, they often plan some kind of outing or celebration instead of giving something material. When I was talking to Cherie and imagining their lives, I could see this nice scene of the family at a campground, picnic tables against a big sky and drinking lemonade out of mason jars. Or maybe a canteen. If you picture this lifestyle of traveling around the world and earning a living, you know, through platform-based gig work as a way of supporting yourself while you otherwise sort of live your dream, Um, You know, it can be an attractive um, alternative. That's Arun Sunda Arajan. He's an economist, professor at NYU, and the author of The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment and the Rise of Crowd-Based Capitalism. He believes that what Sharia is doing and what the corporate refugees we met earlier are doing is the future and that this lifestyle will allow us to view prosperity in a more holistic way. And so if we change the currency with which we measure inequality and start to think of inequality and quality of life 
I think you'll find that many of these crowd-based capitalism platforms, rather than increasing inequality, are actually reducing it because they're reducing inequality in access to a higher standard of living. I like this new way of looking at wealth as opportunity and experience instead of the numbers in your bank account. And that's exactly what all the entrepreneurs at WeWork are striving to achieve with their own ideas of success. But while I appreciate the access that this new economy provides, I can't ignore the fact that it lacks benefits for the workers within it. So the question usually goes, you know, isn't the gig economy bad for workers because people are paid poorly and don't have access to benefits? And my response to that is, There are certainly parts of the gig economy in which people are paid poorly and don't have access to benefits. I would also suggest that there are many parts of our traditional jobs-based economy in which people are poorly paid and don't have access to benefits. That's Diane again, author of The Gig Economy. Both Diane and Arun think that the government needs to give more support and resources for independent workers, like health insurance. Arun believes that in order for these new resources to happen, brand new structures will need to be invented. I think government needs to think really, really hard about what are the structures that need to be put in place so that we don't go backwards in terms of all the progress that we make. The primary role of the government um, in sort of facilitating the decoupling of the social safety net from full-time employment and making it more easily accessible to independent workers is one, to create the structures. Like, you know, how do you get a 401k if you're not a full-time employee? I hope these structures get put in place and this safety net comes soon. And some of it is already underway. Like, there's organizations for freelancers to provide resources and networks. And one popular ride-sharing service is now implementing a 401k program for its drivers. So we have a bit more of an idea of what it will be like to work in the future. But what's going to happen to sticks and bricks companies? What will they look like? So think about a circle of independent workers that companies can draw upon to bring in specific skills or expertise or experience when they need them in order to get specific initiatives or projects or tasks accomplished. So it becomes much more dynamic and much more efficient and much more productive. I see the future of work to be much more about working independently and remotely and flexibly and autonomously than it is today. And I see it, hopefully, to be much less office-based than it is today. Yes, Diane. Yes. I am all about that work-from-home life. And as we saw with the WeWork members, the goal is not just to work independently, but to also keep some of the great things about traditional offices, like community and coffee. Here's Arun again. Human beings are wired to seek community. Um, A very long time ago, a lot of this community came from the village. We're moving into a world where an increasing fraction of the workforce is not going to have the organization that they work for. They're not going to be employees. They're going to be freelancers. They're going to be independent workers. And that's part of what I see as we work sort of future role in society and other co-working spaces, that they will be hubs where people gather to get the same kind of community that they got from, like, you know, the marketplace or from the organization. 
The past 100 years have given us an idea of what a job is supposed to look like and what kind of work we're supposed to be striving for. But the truth is that everyone's work style and work goals are different. I want to be able to work flexibly and on many projects of my choosing. Cherie and her family want to be able to see the world. Finding work as they go allows them to do that. Like them, I'm really enjoying a life where I'm in control of my own schedule and doing the work that I get to do. And that's how I feel. It's work that I get to do, not that I have to do. I left a full-time job. I made that choice. And while it's working out now, I always have this looming feeling that it may not last forever and that I'll have to return to the traditional workforce. And there's nothing wrong with working the normal nine to five, but I was no good at it. And I'd like to continue this lifestyle so that I can do my best work and like Oprah said, live my best life. Fortune Favors the Bold is a branded podcast from MasterCard and Gimlet Creative. This episode was produced by Rachel Jacobs, Caitlin Boguki, Carrie Ann Thomas, Alua Kimi Aladesui, and Jorge Estrada. Nazanin Rafsanjani is our creative director. Sarah Geis is our editor. Katherine Anderson mixed this episode. Technical direction from Zach Schmidt. Our show is brand new. So it would mean a lot if you'd find us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Tell your friends about the show, too. I'm Ashley C. Ford, and I'll talk to you next episode. <laughs> <laughs>